Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. We're doing a mini-series about Christian Zionism and the evangelical media that promoted it. Today, we have an interview that DL did with Joshua P. Hill, who shares with us about growing up Jewish in the U.S. and his experience of Zionism, as well as what led to his anti-Zionist stance now. Together, they discuss a book by Bodhi Taney titled Gates of Zion, which was a Christian historical novel popular with evangelicals in the 80s and 90s that promoted Zionism. Joshua writes on his substack titled New Means. He's been covering politics for a while and most recently has been covering the conflict in Gaza. We're really grateful he took the time to speak with us. Deal and I will be discussing the interview on our Patreon later this month, and you'll get to hear a little bit about why we've been hiatus for a minute and all the wild things that 2024 has brought us so far. So join us over on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. I wanted to let you know that the audio is a little dodgy, just FYI. I did my best to fix it, but I truly believe the conversation is worth the low quality audio. We so appreciate Joshua joining DL for this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it too. Okay, welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station. Today, uh, we are finally tackling a book and a book series that I've been wanting to talk about on this podcast for a really long time. But weirdly enough, it was really hard to find people who wanted to talk about these books with me because they are romances that deal with Christian Zionism. Yes, you heard that correctly. We're going to be talking about Brock and Bodhi Taney, or Taney, these authors that uh, a lot of evangelical Christians have heard of and probably most other people have not. So today, before we get into all that, I'm so excited about the person I'm talking to today. It's Joshua P. Hill. Uh, Maybe I can call you Josh, but you write as Joshua P. Hill. Um, And I started following Joshua's writing last year because you were just sort of on fire when it came to reporting on labor issues. And I wrote a book on Dorothy Day, so I sort of got obsessed with labor stuff as well, just researching her early life. I found your Substack, and now you are kind of in the thick of writing from a Jewish perspective and from an anti-Zionist perspective, which I think honestly has a lot of overlap with solidarity work and labor movements. But that's my perception. How about you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Uh, no, that was spot on. Thank you. Thanks, Dial. Um, where to begin? Uh, most recently, I've certainly been doing a lot of writing uh, about Zionism or anti, anti-Zionism. Um, that's why I'm interested and uh, intrigued to talk to you about it. And yeah, writing about it from my perspective, a Jewish perspective, Jewish upbringing. Um, and so interested to learn about the Christian perspective, which I grew up knowing nothing about when it comes to Zionism. Um, I work in, uh, I guess, media, social media, often labor um, space. And so... Yeah. So would you mind just sort of telling uh, me and, you know, everybody listening a little bit about your background and how you were raised? Yeah. So I was raised in a Jewish home um, to parents who are not super religious, but um, are somewhat religious. But more importantly for the Zionist uh, element of my upbringing, they sent me to a Jewish day school. Um, So I was learning Hebrew and Bible every day. And I was learning that primarily from, uh, or largely from Israelis uh, who had come to the States and were teaching. And I mean, In terms of this conversation, I think one of the really relevant things is that Zionism was, it was just like the air we breathed. You know, it was not, to me, it just seemed so normal. It was not something that we investigated uh, consciously. It just was, was taught to us by people who had grown up in it and thought it was as natural, in particular for Jews, they thought it was the most natural and, you know, obvious thing in the world and uh you know it didn't get questioned and so when uh you know the whole history of of israel palestine was taught to us in a totally utterly biased way and when and current events were discussed through that lens too and it just was also normal and like a fact of nature a fact of life fact of history um and it was only when I was probably a teenager. My my childhood best friend uh, was born in Jerusalem, 
um, to an Israeli mother and a Jewish South African father. And this friend started to uh, talk to me about flaws or faults uh, of Zionism and of Israeli society. And it sort of gave me permission to, to look or prompted me to look at something I just never looked at, just thought was like a fact of life. And then so uh, from there, it was <laughs> a rapid, a fairly rapid change. Um, uh, and yeah, that's the short, short version. Yeah, no, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I'm wondering because, you know, our audience is a lot of people who come from evangelicalism or have some sort of relationship to that. And they don't always understand Zionism, even from the evangelical viewpoint. I'd, I'd be curious if you just want to sort of sum up what Zionism is from a Jewish perspective, because and then I'll kind of chime in with how it's different for evangelicals. From the perspective I grew up with, it was the idea that the Jewish people had an inalienable right to live in what is now the state of Israel, Palestine. Uh, I never heard the word Palestine growing up, <laughs> for what it's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, but an inalienable right to live in that area um, because of religious, historical religious um, history, you know, history in the land from, from and from the Old Testament. And we heard less about the political, you know, Theodore Herzl and the actual Zionist movement um, because that historicizing of it makes it a little less of a fact of nature or a fact of life. You know, it's just that uh, Jews had this inalienable right to live there and a right to, quote-unquote, defend itself at all times. Um, And, of course, everything is framed in this self-defense narrative. Um, And that that homeland, or uh, as they would call it, was, is, it remains necessary for the safety of Jews everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, That's probably the other biggest facet of it, the way I was taught. Okay, thanks so much for spelling that out. I think that's interesting that you're saying, especially as a kid, right, you got this sort of ahistorical approach to it, which is funny. I think of that as a hallmark of evangelicalism, like especially, you know, modern ones. My dad was an evangelical pastor. He still is. And it was just like, we just know what God says through the Bible. And we just happen to know that. And there was so little emphasis (laughs) on church history. Um, and I think that's all kind of strategic for sort of propaganda purposes, because you're right. As soon as you start looking at dates, at history, you start being like, oh, these are just human beings, <laughs> you know, doing some stuff. So that's fascinating. Now, the difference between like probably what you were being taught in school and what I was being taught by a mother who was very into Christian Zionism, right, is this element of sort of like end times prophecy or the book of revelation coming true. And when you add that element onto it, I think it makes for like a pretty horrifying stew. Uh, I know I sent you the audio of me talking to my partner, Chrisman about this stuff. I'm curious if you have a background or any experience with Christian Zionists uh, and what your perception of that is. I mean, I've only learned a tiny bit in uh, the last, couple of years, um, mostly because in the modern U.S. political landscape, it's so important. Um, you know, the single biggest pro-Israel lobby is Christian Zionists, um, probably probably multiple. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I felt like I needed to learn from that uh, political angle. Um, and I, I would really love for more Jewish Zionists uh, to be aware and non-evangelical, you know, just for people to be aware of that dynamic, because I see uh, specifically Jewish Zionists allying with people who, whose vision of, you know, Israel is one that's uh, means a lot of Jews dying and basically, or uh, this mass slaughter is, is my understanding. Yeah. So people find themselves with these bedfellows who don't actually have their best interests in mind and have this, what is to me a strange and, sort of alarming uh, vision for what happens in the in the land of Palestine. Yeah, I think what's hard for me, you know, growing up with evangelical Christianity and a mom who was so sure of all this, and, you know, apocalyptic theology has been a huge part of mm. the American Christian story that I think people don't know what to do with it, 
right? And yeah. so it's seen as a fringe movement. But if we look at the trends in publishing, if we look at the majority of Christians have some sort of end times theology that they've thought through, mm. um, I think it's something that needs to be talked about so much more. And you're right. I find it so short-sighted that Jewish Zionists would embrace Christian Zionists, right? Because the Christian Zionists, like all the ones right now, if you read their blogs, if you follow them on Facebook, if you follow them on social media, you know, they are frothing at the mouth for like the big end thing is happening. It's all happening. And they're really excited. And But what this means for everyone who's not one of the new chosen people, which again, is pretty horrifying. That's how evangelicals view themselves, right? They're the new chosen people. And so they believe that Jews all around the world will move back to Israel. And once they're all there, right, there's going to be this huge battle and everyone's going to die. Jews, Arabs, you know, everyone. And Christians will be long gone, right? Because that's the rapture theology. That's the end times theology. And so, you know, the people, so we're, so we're talking about a romance book today. <laughs> and the people who wrote this romance book, that's what they believe. That's what yeah. my mom believed. That's what my mom raised me to believe. Now, did they focus on how all the Jewish people were going to be killed? Not too much, but still, that's such an important part of their worldview. And these are people who are, you know, Speaker of the House in the United States. Like, these are people who hold this viewpoint. They think the world is ending soon. So, that doesn't give me a lot of hope uh, in the long-term efforts to try and keep Jewish people safe. So, anywho, that's my rant <laughs> about all that. <laughs> yeah. If you have yeah. any thoughts on that. I mean, my one thought is just uh, it becomes this accelerationist thing where, you know, these evangelical Zionists in particular are, are on board with the mass slaughter if they see it going towards this ultimate good. When I was thinking about how that connects to the book that we're about to discuss, you know, there's just this dehumanization of Arabs and Jews that I see or like a flattening or, you know, they're mm -hmm. not, um, they're like pawns in this long game uh, rather than fully fleshed out uh, people. Um, yeah, I mean, we're seeing that play out right now, and it's it's just this, you know, there's some overlap with the with the far right with Netanyahu and them, um, and this not seeing uh, Arabs as as people, um, as whole exactly. people, um, mm -hmm. and then uh, you know, to Netanyahu, these these Christian Zionists are probably pawns to some degree too that he thinks are furthering his goals of of arming him and funding his, you know, that regime to to commit this slaughter. So it's such a it's dirty and it's it's bad on all sides there. And it's so short-sighted and the only end goal, right, is more suffering and more violence. And American Christians, if they have any background with Zionism, right, have been sort of uh, prepared for this inevitable genocide, which is why I think American Christians are not resisting it um, in any way, shape or form, because they've been told this would happen. And now they view it as proof that their rights they are the chosen people. And so the apocalypse, the end times, all of this escalating of violence in the state of Palestine, right, to them is like, great, we are right. This proves we're right, that God's coming. And, that, and I, what do you do with somebody who is really excited about being proven right about genocide, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you talked about this a bit on your last episode, which is that part of the um, the end times history in, in American Christianity um, is that it can be pushed back again and again and again. You know, the aliens didn't come yesterday, but mm -hmm. that's because their ship was on a, you know, yeah. uh, that's a different sort of cult, I guess. But the, the rapture didn't come yesterday, but that's because we miscalculated based on this passage and it's coming in 10 years. And what do you do when in those 10 years is ongoing displacement and genocide? And, you know, it's, yeah. It, how do it, I was struggling listening to you to sort of fit together the, the people whose head are, heads are sort of in the clouds are sort of in this alternate reality almost to me. Yes, um, they are. Definitely They're alternate absolutely. from the one I grew up in and, um, and, and exist in right now, I think. Uh, and when the, the concrete reality that's on the ground is, is so bloody. Um, 
Anyway. Yeah, they're pretty. They're pretty Delulu, but I will say that right now they are feeling good, and they are feeling like God is mm. revealing all the prophecies are coming true. So that's that's kind of why I'm like, we got to do this podcast now because yeah. evangelical Christians who are Zionists are probably at their most dangerous right this very second, right? And they yeah, will awesome. say all of this is a part of God's plan. We will not stop it, and we will just continue to fund Israel knowing that the vast majority of Jewish people we believe will be will be slaughtered, right? So there's that. Uh, I just want to say really quick, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the organization Jew Witches, but they talk about Jewish spirituality. They have a Christian Zionism 101 sort of post and a podcast that's really great. But they said that, um, you know, the largest Zionist organization in America is a Christian organization. And so like, there are, it says as of 2021, there are 7.5 million American Jews and, you know, not all of them are practicing religion, right? But Christians United for Israel alone has over 10 million Christian members and that there are more than 30 million Christian Zionists in the United States alone. Um, and that's double the population of Jews worldwide. And again, their belief is that a genocidal holy war is coming that they will be yeeted out of before it gets really bad, but it's their job to usher it in. So, sorry to say all that, but that's yeah. what we're talking about. And to end, <laughs> let's get into the book that I've been wanting to talk about for forever, which is a book called The Gates of Zion by Bodhi Taini. And this is a part of a series called The Zion Chronicles. It was published in, oh no, I should have had this ready. I believe it was 1988. Oh, 1986. So I was two years old when this book was first published, but when I was like a middle schooler and a teenager, these were in all the church libraries that I ever saw. And so this is a funny thing about American Christian publishing is that these books like spread like wildfire, you know, throughout churches, small groups. And I've always been interested in how Christian publishing has targeted uh, white women, right? And and sort of catered to them. And I think in general, white evangelical women have been really understudied when it comes to their political power and, you know, how they uphold systems of violence. So that's why I think talking about romance, talking about Christian Zionist romance, it's so niche. And yet I think it actually has uh, some insights for today. <laughs> so oh, yeah. all I mean that, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? Well, I mean, the big thing I was thinking is that it's not it's not as niche as it might seem. You know, the those thirty million that you were just talking about is a huge number of people, and just somehow living in a, like a parallel track over there, at least to me. Uh, you know, not to you, and probably not to, to many people listening. I think it should be you know sort of unearthed, especially right now, like you said, so important. Yeah. Okay. So, Bodhi Tani, just really quick background before I read the uh, synopsis of this book, and I. I sent you a few sections of this book. I did not make you read this whole book because it's a really long book <laughs> yes. that is not great writing. But Bodhi Taney, so in 1978, she was working on like a biography of the guy who was the stunt double for John Wayne. And she met John Wayne and she wrote some scripts for him. And so she told him, she told John Wayne, like, I really want to write about uh, how the nation state of Israel was created. And John Wayne was like, you've got to do that. And he said, it's the Jewish Alamo. Okay. And then Bodhi was basically asked by a producer to write a script centering on the day in 1948 when Jerusalem's mayor received from the British the keys to the old city. Okay. And so that was what she was kind of asked to do. I don't think that was actually made into a movie or anything, but that's kind of where she ends up getting the idea to write a series of novels. And she, and her and her husband, who has a PhD in history, I'm sad to say, <laughs> um, you know, they've written over 65 different books that are all historical fiction in some way or another. And they've sold, you know, over 35 million copies, probably a lot more than that, because these stats are all quite old. Um, and the sad thing about these books is that because her husband, Brock, you know, has this history degree, Christians, especially in Christian schools, 
and even Christian colleges, uh, they use some of these books in their history classes. And that is something that the Taneys are very proud of. And in fact, on one of their websites, it says, Zionist libraries around the world consider these classic historical novels and are used to teach history in college classrooms. Uh, wow. So, so there's... <laughs> So there's all that. So we got John Wayne's blessing on this, okay? Um, Jewish Alamo. The Jewish Alamo. What do you think that that's means? That's a new one for me. <laughs> what is that? Um, no, when I read that, I was like, what? I mean, in this, uh, you were kind enough to send me a brief bio of this fascinating couple. Um, and this, one of the things that jumped out to me is that when they were in L.A., some bookstore looking to talk to somebody about uh, 1948, they asked for O Jerusalem, which is in uh, in my like circles or whatever growing up was like is a classic, and it's sort of similar, which is like a little eerie to me. But it's it's a historical fiction about 1948 and the you know leading up to the, the declaration of statehood of and and the, the initial war of 1948 and not quite well you know, whatever terms they would use, but it's like turning what, you know, to many Palestinians and to many people is is tragic and and even to many Jews is like this difficult moment um, of war and, uh, you know, kind of establishment of the settler state and and all this um, into that John Wayne thing, into this like, these fighters were outmatched and they were bed their backs against the wall. And it's like, wait, what? This is, yeah. it's, you know, war isn't colonialism, war, all these things like aren't sexy. Um, but to John Wayne and, and maybe apparently to some other people, uh, they're turned into this like distorted thing. Yeah. I mean, I think John Wayne, right. Is, was a kind of a master propagandist and that's what mm-hmm. he made. He made mm-hmm. propaganda movies about, yeah white western you know christian patriarchy winning and mm-hmm. and i think it's interesting that in the 1970s right there was this sense like this kind of treatment also needs to be towards other you know empires that are struggling hard to make their message resonate with like the masses in the united states and so i think it was very strategic what's interesting mm-hmm. about this yeah. story of Bodhi taney going into like the jewish part of la and looking for a copy of O jerusalem um is that you know she's now twisted that story in an evangelical christian way which is god led her to meet someone who actually survived 1948 which means everything she writes is what she calls holy spirit breathed and so it adds this extra layer of it's not just propaganda. It's not just historical fiction. It's not just taking on the Jewish idea of, you know, the mythologizing of 1948. But now we have the evangelical spin of God's directing me to write about this and everything in her life and everything she writes is just, it's all God. So anywho, that's another gross element. No, totally. But <laughs> divinely inspired to write romance novels about Israel. So I'm going to just really quick give a summary of the book, and then you can tell me, based off the snippets I sent you, just some some thoughts you had. Okay, so here's the summary of the book from Goodreads, actually. Okay. Ellie, a young American photojournalist, finds herself in Jerusalem of 1947. She unwittingly becomes a pawn in a political chess game when she photographs some ancient scrolls discovered by Bedouins. David seems to love her dearly, but Moish, I'm not sure how to say that name, I'm sorry, has a purpose and a commitment in life that intrigues her more than she can say. He's a Zionist. Through it all, Ellie discovers a people, a spirit, and a person, I think that's Jesus, who probably <laughs> changed the direction of her life. The first book in the Zion Chronicles vividly portrays the intense struggle of the Jewish people in the aftermath of the Holocaust and the forces within and without which engulf the Middle East in conflict and controversy even today. Okay. Now, based off the the snippets I sent you, what was your sense of this book? There's a lot. Um, First of all, I think it's funny or interesting that that character's name is Moshe, which is Hebrew for Moses. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, conveniently inserted uh, that reference. Um, I think the first thing that struck me was that, uh, and 
and I don't know if this was intentional, but the Jews who are trying to get to, uh, you know, Palestine, the British protector, whatever it was called, 1947, um, going to 1948, um, they're portrayed as the underdogs, and the authors are really, at least to me, initially portraying the British as the the big evil, sort of the big evil empire. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if that's a sort of callous, so I, an attempt to appeal to American audiences. Like, they are also fighting the British. <laughs> and were these, you know, the Jewish... Uh, refugees and smugglers trying to get people um, into the land of Israel, um, Palestine are, uh, you know, they're the underdogs just like us, like fighting the British just like us, um, which felt, you know, a little ham-fisted, but but I'm sure it worked for for plenty of people. Um, And, you know, in that in that bio you sent, there's this whole emphasis, like the PhD that you mentioned that the husband has in history, um, of like everything here is factual. We we combed mm-hmm. all the archives. Mm-hmm. Everything here is just pure fact. And like there were, you know, for example, limits to the number of Jews that could get in while the British were in charge and Jewish smugglers and people did try to circumvent those, uh, did successfully circumvent those restrictions. Um, but like all history and of course, doubly so with, historical fiction it's like well what facts are you choosing to pick out here um right. you know it's so uh i mean plenty of it's not factual but the facts that are chosen are so clearly trying to craft this image of these of, at least initially of these like jewish underdog uh characters against the, the <laughs> there's some really like funny like strong language um oh yeah these english thieves and stuff like that like just Mm-hmm. really uh calling the british dirty and all this stuff which just felt like a lot but um and of course pairing that with like no real acknowledgement at least from what i remember of uh you know the jewish the settler like aims or you know as, like colonialism or anything like that is of course not not mentioned at least from what i remember uh but it's just the sort of two-dimensional portrayal of the palestinian characters you know the character that got the most attention or like the most prominent is this with Jews or Israelis now might call like this terrorist leader sort of character. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but to me, he was the one that like jumped out as the mo- like the most powerful character is one who is all set on violence against Jews. The moment the clock strikes midnight, I guess. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, so I think it's interesting. You mentioned the British thing because I think sometimes like I know me growing up, white evangelical um i've sort of been desensitized right to sort of the caricatures christians have against uh muslims in particular right so i think Mm -hmm. that is sort of like not surprising to see that happening a lot in this book right Mm -hmm. the arab people and muslims are very violent like all this stuff but the british thing it didn't really stand out to me, which is hilarious, but I did find this review and somebody like, I don't even know if they're a Christian or anything, but she wrote this review of the book and she's like, it was so weird because I'm from England and the way this book talks about British people, like the British soldiers are always like slurping their coffee really loudly and like they have these Cockney accents, even though nobody else in the book speaks with an accent and they're all just seen as like so stupid and everybody hates them and so she was like i just don't really understand like a lot of the history is like seems very slanted towards an american perspective so maybe this is just a part of it and i was like i totally missed that but yes in this novel it's like everybody hates the british (laughs) which is probably true like everybody probably did hate the british there at that time you know like fair enough i guess maybe um but I was wondering if you thought that it was also part of an effort to like reinforce the idea that Jews are supposed to control the land, you know? Yeah. And Americans, good Americans, people who are following God who are Americans have always supported the Jewish people. And so I yeah. think the main character truly in this book is this young white woman. Ellie, who eventually learns to follow God and that God has a plan to use her in this big, uh, important event. And so she becomes a Zionist, right? 
there is a Jewish guy, Moish, who is sort of in love with her. But by the end, don't worry, he ends up with another Jewish person because we can't really have all that. And eventually him and his Jewish wife do convert to Christianity. So don't worry about that either. Okay. Like, oh, wow. They're going to, I mean, you could not have them remain. They're, they're going to be Messianic Jews. Okay. So Ellie eventually ends up with the other, the white guy who also becomes a Christian. Maybe he becomes a Zionist, you know, freedom fighter. And it's all, so it's all through the story of a white woman and how she learns to support the nation state of Israel and support Jewish people. And at every twist and turn, right, her life is threatened by Muslims and Palestinians, right, who are just violently against this. And so she eventually learns she's on God's side, which means everything she does is for a purpose and all the suffering's worth it. So that's kind of uh, where all that ends up. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I mean, I guess I'm not surprised. It's just... It's hard to imagine writing 60 books like that, that that have this, I assume, a sort of similar trajectory again and again, um, teaching those. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They're taught at at colleges. Yeah. I mean, they have a history degree. Okay. So like, what else, (laughs) what else do you want? But I do think the primary reader is supposed to identify it with Ellie. And in the beginning, Ellie's very confused, right? She's, She's just there to kind of be a photojournalist. And slowly through the course of the book, she becomes aware that the Zionist perspective is the one that is fighting on the side of God. And that as Americans, God wants her and David and others to support that. Um, And that no matter what happens, God has her in, you know, his hands. And so that's why she ends up surviving all these things that most people wouldn't survive. But yeah, so that's, uh, that's kind of the through line there. You you were just making me think that from the the first interaction that Ellie has with Palestinians that I remember, um, is this like the men, these two men Mm -hmm. sort of from the jump are making, you know, according to the author, these two Palestinian men are like making, you know, sort of jokes about like sexually assaulting her and stuff. Yeah. Like yeah. from the, that's how the Palestinians are portrayed from the German. It's just really, yeah, it's gross. <laughs> and it gets a lot worse from there. So, so, I mean, we've already talked about some of these questions, but like, just even from this small snippet to you, how are Jewish people portrayed in the white evangelical imagination? I mean, it feels, to me, it feels like this means to an end sort of thing, you know, like, Support is conditional, but also the support of, like, from the author's perspective um, and from that evangelical Zionist perspective, it seems to me like really the defining thing that I keep coming back to is that if Jews weren't wrapped up in this prophetic or, you know, that word feels too kind almost, but um, in this idea of the end times, if Jews didn't have an important role to play, then where would we be in this person's mm-hmm. imagination, you know, in the author's imagination or um, in the thinking of, of Christian Zionists? And it just feels like, you know, this, this relegation to, uh, you know, if somebody's just there to be used, it feels very, um, well, unpleasant, but I don't know the exact word, just like uh, uh, it's not really a full personhood or a full three-dimensional person yes. to these to these authors um if if we're just here to be used in some way um yeah and then i yeah it's this it's a strange back and forth because i know that to some zionists there's still a a gratefulness or a gratitude like hey well we're getting your support <laughs> you know and it oh this the strange bedfellows strange bedfellows yeah. And, and I know people make those kinds of choices all the time when they feel their safety is on the line. But I do think it's important to kind of play out like, so this book is set in 1947, right? On the eve of the creation of the, the nation state of Israel. And I think it's interesting, the quotes that they put in here from real people, like David Ben-Gurion, am I saying that right? Ben-Gurion. And like the big quote that they're obsessed with is when he says, in the end days, it is said that the lion and the lamb will lie down together. I think even then I would rather be a lion. And I'm like, is this talking about, you know, evangelical Christians and Jewish? Like, do they both think of themselves as the lion in this scenario of the lion and the lamb, you know, being together? 
I don't, I don't know. I was just sort of like that. No, that, I think you just said it perfectly. I think that's exactly what they think. They both think that each thinks that they're the sort of uh, dominant uh, partner or dominant player who sees it more clearly. Um, I, I guess to me, it's funny because the, the Christian or the evangelical perspective is based on this thing that I'm pretty sure isn't going to happen. <laughs> Um, but I'm, <laughs> yeah. I hope not. Yeah, like I'm, you know, and then so therefore the the Ben Gurions and the the Netanyahu's or whatever think that they, you know, makes them clearer that they're the lion. But but the quote the, the lion or the dominant player in order to do what? Like you get licensed to then kill all these people? You know, it's um, it's like what's the a very, very, very uh, hollow victory to me. Um, yes. Uh, yeah, as we're, you know, see, see playing out right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that even, so the book kind of, this book sort of bypasses all like the end times genocide stuff by staying in 1947 and mm. 1948. Mm-hmm. But any Christian who is aware of dispensational theology, which is, the majority of Christians in America, right? They believe, nobody wants to say it this plain, right? But they believe that the Jewish people rejected God, rejected the Messiah. And so now the church, right, is the new chosen people or the new people with the covenant of God. So the old covenants are all erased. Only Christians, right, will be saved, are the chosen people. And that the creation of the nation state of Israel and Jewish people coming back to the land of Israel, right, really sets off this, all these bells, right, in in Christians' minds. Like, okay, so it's really happening. This is re- So since this happened, right, end time stuff has been on the rise. Mm-hmm. And even though every five years, right, somebody writes a new book saying this is the end times and it never happens, it still continues to sell so many copies. It gets yeah. butts in seats in church, Right, because people have a lot of anxiety, right, it's and it's got to go somewhere. Yeah. So, so they put yeah. it into into all this shit, and then it becomes that evangelical Christians end up using Jewish people. Now, one thing I wanted to talk to you really quickly about is sort of like this evangelical impulse to appropriate Jewish culture. But then also we see right now with all these debates about anti-Semitism happening, like on college campuses and stuff, all these right wing Christians, Republican Christians are like, yes, we are so worried about anti-Semitism. We are so worried about this happening. And again, I see this like strange bedfellows thing happening. And I just want to kind of scream like, you're the most anti-Semitic people I know. You, you believe that. Jews deserve to all die because they rejected God, like at your core. So that's kind of where how I'm thinking about it. No, I, I've been thinking about that for three months now. I mean, for way longer, but it, you know, especially the last several months, it's um, when it comes to Jews in the United States, the bedfellow situation gets a lot clearer to me because we aren't going to win out in the way that, uh, like, Netan, you know, Israel, Israelis, the right-wing government, whatever, they might win out through all this. You know, there might be a sort of, uh, at least some people are obviously hoping for a solidification and a concentration of, like, Zionist power in the United States. Um, the sort of silencing of anti-Zionist voices and other, and other voices. Um, but we Jews in the U.S., some of whom are allying now, you know, the even stranger bedfellows, like you find yourself, you know, some Jewish leader or somebody politician allying with far right politicians yeah. And, yeah. and forces who, yeah, don't even view us as like pawns in their strange endgame. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to like Jews here in the U.S. We do not win anything from that. We just lose, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, so the. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's been so much conflation of, of Zionism and Judaism that, I, and I think a lot of Jews in the U.S. have bought into that. Uh, and yet, this moment should be some clear evidence that that they are not connected, you know, <laughs> or not. You know, there's obviously our connections, but they're definitely not synonymous um, at all. And 
Yeah, when you see somebody who we know doesn't care about Jews uh, suddenly pivoting to act like anti-Semitism is their number one priority, that should be taken with yeah. a very uh, heavy grain of salt. Yeah, I I think it's really sad. And I think that I just never want to say that anti-Semitism isn't an issue in the world because it is. And I think the number one <laughs> perpetrators of it are evangelical Christians. Like, I just mm-hmm. don't think we can get away from this. And long term, these are not the bedfellows you want. Um, you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. In your no, quest for safety. Exactly. No, it's empowering people who don't care care about Jewish safety at all. Um, I mean, you see, you know, he's talked about it too much, but maybe the clearest example is one day Elon Musk is saying, you know, agreeing with anti-Semitic tropes blatantly in front of, you know, the whole world, millions and millions of people on Twitter or whatever. And like two days later, he's in Israel somehow magically atoning for it and then coming back and just doing the same, you know, it just... It's a joke, basically. You know, I think to most people, they we just can see through it. Um, but there's a lot of you know powerful people in in Congress and these people who have dubbed themselves you know, anti-Semitism crusaders, Harvard, whatever, all this nonsense. Yeah, um, yeah who are keeping up the <laughs> keeping the facade going strong. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's a lot of bad faith actors, you know, especially politicians. Mm-hmm. And then there's some true believers, and I think both are dangerous from the evangelical Christian side, right, and the right-wing Republican side. And, you know, I think both of them sort of need to be addressed for where their end game is going, you know? And I think when we just sort of let them live in their mythologies and and yeah. get away with saying they're, uh, they care about anti-Semitism, it just – that's kind of what prompted me to finally just go ahead and make – this series, even though it's just a really triggering and awful uh, conversation to be having, if I'm being perfectly honest. Mm. Now, I want to be respectful of time. I do want to really quick ask you if you feel like things are sort of changing when it comes to Jewish people being Zionists or anti-Zionists, or at least sort of having some movements away because, you know, from 2016 on, there has been a mass exodus of people leaving Christianity in the United States, right? And so people continue to leave evangelicalism, especially younger people. And I think as they've left that religion, Zionism is one of the things people are starting to be like, this means nothing outside of Christianity. I'm not even a Christian anymore. It's doubly ridiculous to me now. So I think we are at a time where especially younger people are just not they're able to see through the propaganda. They're able to see how little, like nothing good is going to come from what is happening Mm -hmm. to Gaza, right? It's going to facilitate cycles of war, aggression, all of this stuff. So I'm just curious about your perspective on that. No, I think, I think you're totally right. Um, I think for young Jews, um, much more so than older generations, um, there's been a move away from Zionism um, you know, not not everybody, of course, but statistically, just much much more than than other generations. And I think, I think part of that had been coming. There had been groundwork laid by Palestinian activists, by Jewish anti-Zionists, by other people, um, for for decades now, really. Um, and I do think, you know, it's talked about a lot, but I think the social media era does make a big difference. You know, if if you and I were still just getting our information from the three news channels on TV or whatever, this would be a very different uh, set of set of circumstances. You know, there's, I don't think you, I mean, obviously people find arguments, but I basically think it's impossible to argue with seeing parents mourning children who have been slaughtered and stuff, you know, it just is so visceral and emotional. Um, and the type of stuff that used to not get through to, to Americans, I think, um, my understanding. And uh, and even though Palestinians have been leading this, you know, obviously on the ground, leading resistance and stuff, um, I think in the U.S., I'm grateful for anti-Zionist Jews right now because I think our role is to, like, take away that shield of, of anti-Semitism that, 
Israel is using. I mean, using it to a point that, like, to me feels obscene and feels like it hurts Jews in the long run. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's, that's almost another whole conversation. But uh, the thing that came up most recently is South Africa accusing Israel, you know, formally yes. in national court of justice of, of genocide and Israeli government immediately resorting to the, the shield of anti-Semitism, which is just so like hurts my soul. Um, and is so repugnant. Um, so I think as anti-Zionist Jews, we are uniquely positioned specifically to take that away. Like, no, no, this is not, this is the colonial political ideology project. It is not, uh, us, it is not our whole, people and religion and culture, ethnicity and all this stuff. No, there's so much there. I think, you know, it's clear that anti-Zionist Jews are not a fringe group, right? It's a growing movement. And I think the way people like yourself have shown up in these times, to me, it speaks to a level of moral clarity that has been there for a long time. And that's what I think about going into the future. Like who right away was able to say these are propaganda tactics? You know, who right away was able to sort of look at what stories were not being told? And I just think anti-Zionist Jews have been so helpful for me personally to sort of get my bearings in this time where my own history, my own um, experiences. I think Christians probably have a lot of guilt about anti-Semitism in our religion. And so we are terrified to be called anti-Semitic. And that definitely happened to me quite a bit when I first started posting about Palestine after October 7th. And I think it's just helpful to recognize like this is something worth thinking through, worth pushing through, and worth exploring a diversity of voices Um when we, and because we do need to think about anti Semitism, you know, I'm saying, I'm not saying we don't, but that is a very fraught thing happening for a lot of people right now. And I think keeps people silent, if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah. Which is the yeah. point, I think. No, I think that's exactly <laughs> the point. I think you're exactly right. And I think, I think what's really tragic, again, for Jews in the United States in particular who buy into, who are still buying into not just Zionism, but the specific uh, sort of manipulation of anti Semitism that, that Israeli government and other parts of Israeli sort of Hasbro Zionist propaganda uh, is is doing is that it hurts us. I, you know, I just think it hurts yeah. Jews everywhere, really, but specifically outside of Israel. Um, it, it's, it becomes this boy who cried wolf thing to me in some ways, where if anti-Semitism, they're watering it down and rendering it meaningless to some people. Obviously, there are thoughtful people who will still reckon with it, and Jews and, and otherwise. But a lot of people, it the, you know, you hear this word in this manipulative context again and again, and it becomes harder to, I mean, at the simplest level, harder to see the truth about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think one of the reasons uh, that Jews in the United States and a lot of people who are anybody who's talking about this, reckoning with it, um, should be clear about the delineation is that yeah, anti-Semitism is real, and it's coming often from far-right actors and, and sometimes, you know, evangelical actors in the U.S. And then in Europe, we're, you know, seeing it um, from from the right most often, not from people, you know, not from people who say, stop bombing Gaza, Palestine should be free. These things are not, that is not where the majority of it is coming from. And yeah. it's certainly not the most powerful actors, you know, the most powerful actors, uh who are anti-Semitic are, are certainly these, these conservative figures in the U S and, um, and Europe and, and elsewhere. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the good news is I do think sort of one of the main tenets of a propaganda war has already been lost, especially on the young, right. Which is young people know if you set up a situation where you are not allowed to criticize a government, a government that has weapons, a government that is bombing civilians, if you set up a situation where you can't call or critique, you know, that government, people are out. People see that as propaganda 101 and they're out. And I'm encouraged by that. I don't, I think boobers, no, they totally <laughs> believe all of it. It seems to me that's printing a wide brush. Uh, I'll say why evangelical boomers. Okay. But the young people, they're just like, wait, you're saying we can't criticize a government? We love criticizing governments. Like, you can't tell us to stop doing that. 
Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I was sort of astounded because even two or three years ago, of course, the intensity of the Israeli campaigns, even you know, two years ago, uh, in the West Bank and, and Gaza, weren't. It just wasn't as intense. It wasn't as much uh, killing of civilians, and there wasn't this open talk about ethnic cleansing. But but even two years ago, the numbers were just so different. Like the polling has just done this 180. That's you know, I, a testament mostly to the people on the ground, like reporters, journalists in Gaza and, and the West Bank and, you know, Palestinians who have persisted, you know, they, gone through times, years and years and years where like, where they were, you know, shouted down, pushed out or, or silenced. And now, yeah, public perception. I think the propaganda war has by and large just been lost by by Israel, by, yeah. by Zionists, which is a start. It's a great, it's, it's a start, you know? Um, and I mean, <laughs> it's just, the United States is, uh, government <laughs> is also <laughs> sickening. Just, you know, 80% yes. of the governments around the world are raid against us and against Israel. Yes. We're almost, almost a completely isolated position where it's just the U S and Israel still defending these actions. Um, anyway, Okay, we could go on and on about this, but just to like sort of end on this book, and I'll be talking about this book with a few other people, but um, the cover, you know, shows a white woman holding a camera in front of a mosque with a Nazi symbol in the background, and it's just like this, well, like, you know, the swastika. No, damn, I didn't even know the Nazi, I mean, that... Because it's really important for white Christian women to be like... We are so not Nazis. And actually, the Nazis partnered with Muslims, right, in this book. That's what's happening to try and eradicate all the Jewish people. Um, hmm. And, you know, we've always supported Israel. We always will. That's what God wants us to do. We are the heroes. There's no, you know, nothing to say except we are the heroes. <laughs> that that's the that's it and i think we're seeing this play out uh politically even now but again it's this propaganda is not working anymore which i'm so grateful to hear about but for those listening you maybe absorb some of this theology maybe your grandma read these books maybe your mom read these books maybe your pastor thought these were great works of history and i just want to say like this is a theology and a belief worth interrogating and worth rejecting wholeheartedly after looking at where it leads, where it leads politically today, and also where it leads in the minds of these people. So really quick, I want to let you go, Josh. Do you want to give me a guess on where Brock and Bodhi Taney are today, what some of their political beliefs are right <laughs> now, if they have anything to say about world events right now? You, you, want, to, you want to give a guess? I remember seeing that they were living between their multiple homes in Hawaii and, uh, and London, London and California. Oh, and California. They, yeah, so that's one thing. They got rich off of these books, okay? <laughs> yeah. They got really rich. Um, they are extremely politically conservative, and the most recent series they wrote – was with this evangelical pastor named Ray Bentley. And they wrote a series of like prophetic books talking, you know, set in like the very near future. And the last of the books has a Christian holding a chauffeur horn. I'm not sure how to say that. Um, And the fifth book starts with California experiencing a natural disaster, right? Because God is punishing California. And the few true believers left are trying to get to these places of refuge. One is in Israel and that's the last book. And so, so that, so that's where they're at right now. At this point, the end is really here and the true believers need to congregate in places like Idaho and Israel and create their compounds because the end of the world is at hand. And actually I just looked at their Facebook page yesterday (laughs) and um, (laughs) the post from yesterday is Bodhi says a a quote from one of her books it says it's simple them folks up in Washington is a going to heaven or they ain't and then her comment on this quote is yep so true we're going to see it the door of the ark is about to close only a few people right 
get into the ark, everybody else is killed. Like everybody else dies. And a part of me is just like, did it, did it, did it, did it say in that story that God said he was never going to do that again? Wasn't like that the main takeaway of the story of Noah? <laughs> Wait, but it, it's, well, I it's wild. Uh, don't want to get into the mind of Bodhi too much. <laughs> <laughs> and then the comments, right? Are people like, it's so exciting and also scary, but mostly exciting. And it's just, this is the mindset of people um, who are deep, deep, deep in the evangelical end times theology, which I wish it was fringe, but honestly, yeah, these beliefs, yeah. uh, like I said, 30 million Christian Zionists in the United yeah. States, like that's something worth considering. I took a class once on apocalypse, basically. <laughs> um, Did you? We, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, a lot of it was like climate change and you know, pandemics, uh, stuff like that. But the first couple of classes were more like the, the main framework was centuries of various Protestant, you know, groups in the United States. Um, and just how, how not fringe it is. Like, I think yes. even for a lot of people who aren't currently, I think it's sort of in the air in the U S basically, it's just, you know, I mean, decades of, of fear about nuclear Holocaust coming at any moment. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just in the in the water in the air, and I think a lot of people. What I would really like to to go into some some other time is <laughs> just why people like what's the exciting part because I don't see that part. <laughs> um, why why the hope that that moment is coming at any time? You know that that worries me. You want to get you want me to you want me to give you my thoughts if you on a that. One hundred one. I would because I would be thought a lot about this since my life as a child was was really traumatically impacted by a parent who was obsessed with these that I think pairs with some mental illness and depression and, and sort of all these things. But I think at its core, why Christian Zionists right now in particular are very giddy or very excited about the end of the world is one, I think they're people who have so much fear and so much distrust of the world and their God has disappointed them over and over again, but they can't say that. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of the yeah. sunk cost fallacy. And so for two, when things like what's happening right now in Gaza are happening, again, what I said earlier, they take it as assurance that they are correct. So the end really is happening. So instead of being scared of the end, they are like, finally, we're being proven right. And not only do I get to stop living in this messed up world, I will finally be proven right as the chosen people. And that, my friend, is a toxic stew. (laughs) Does that make sense? That's to me. That's my perspective on the psychology of why the excitement is. They're being proven right. And they get to stop being a part of this messed up human race that actually takes a lot of work to exist in and work towards, you know, a good world for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, one of the things I'm hearing is if we had a a better world if we did things to create and build a better world this would be a lot less appealing i um, think so <laughs> but that is why people like you give me hope you know i i said it in my chat with crispin sometimes i think the best fu i can have to apocalyptic evangelical thinking is to commit to live life and to live a long life and to envision a life where as many people as possible have access to basic human rights and are treated with human dignity. So that's going forward what I want to do. And I see you doing that in your work. Again, that comes back into the labor solidarity. There's so many, you, you know, the labor movement, I think, is one of the things that gives me the most hope about our future. Like, yes, we have rising authoritarianism. Yes, we have Zionism ruining the so many people's lives. But there are these movements of solidarity uh, with so many people. So thanks, Josh, just so much for your work. Uh, hopefully I can chat with you more in the future, but it, I'd love for you to just kind of tell people where they can find you, where they can find your work and how they can support you. Uh, well, thanks. Thank you, Dale. Yeah. Yeah. Lots to talk about. I uh, write um, at the moment on Substack. It's, the publication is called New Means um, or just, you could search Joshua P. Hill and, and I'm sure you'll find me. Um and yeah, that's that's where I try to pour in this this stuff, this solidarity, this building a better world that you're talking about. So, yeah, 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on here and chatting with me and taking some time to think about, you know, a pretty terribly written book. <laughs> no, thank but it was you. nice I, to I make fun of it with you. <laughs> yes. Yes. That was good. To, I, it's far out of my world and I learned, I learned a lot in an unexpected way. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. You can become a Patreon supporter and get extra episodes and a long backlog discussing evangelical artifacts like Brio Magazine, the WOW Music Series, and more. Follow us on Instagram and find more information at our website, propheticimaginationstation.com. Thanks for listening.